Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, quick note. There are English and Spanish episodes of La Brega. This is the English one. Si quieres escuchar en español, vuelve al feed y selecciona la versión con el título en español. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Futuro. I've noticed that outside of Puerto Rico, many people seem uncomfortable calling the island a U.S. colony. In English, you'll hear the word territory or commonwealth, protectorate even. And that used to be the case in Puerto Rico, too. But not anymore. Hay muchos en Puerto Rico, muchos, muchos, aún dentro de su partido que dice que sí, que Puerto Rico es una colonia, por eso que se llama de descolonización. Eso es, es una colonia completamente. Que Puerto Rico es una colonia de los Estados Unidos. Somos colonia de los Estados Unidos. Una colonia, una colonia. No sé una colonia. People would twist themselves into pretzels to avoid the C word. And there's a reason for that. Puerto Ricans were promised that they were not a colony. This is Yarimar Bonilla. Yarimar is a political anthropologist. She writes about places like Puerto Rico, Guadalupe, and Curacao, which are not independent states. She has a column in the Puerto Rican newspaper El Nuevo Día, and she's also written for outlets like The Washington Post and The Nation. Lately, she's been tracing the evolution of how Puerto Ricans think about our relationship to the U.S. and how that has been transformed by the many challenges of the last decade— a debt crisis, hurricanes, earthquakes, and now a global pandemic. What's crazy is that being a Puerto Ricanist now requires you to also be like a disasterologist and I guess yeah. now also an epidemiologist and an economist and a historian. All this crisis has led to a reckoning in Puerto Rico. That promise that Yarimar mentioned about not being a colony, it's pretty much been broken. In 1952, Puerto Rico had adopted this new political status called the ELA, the Estado Libre Asociado, or Free Associated State, which doesn't really mean much. In English, we call it a commonwealth. And what does that mean? Is it like the Commonwealth of Massachusetts? No. Is it like the Commonwealth of Canada? Also no. Commonwealth doesn't really mean anything concrete, but it's the kind of word that made everyone feel better about the U.S. having a colony. The Estado Libre Asociado, the ELA, promised self-governance, but not independence. It was a kind of compromise, or a type of brega, created by the island's first elected governor, Luis Muñoz Marín, in order to massage the continued colonial interests of the U.S. and Puerto Rico and present a sovereign future to his residents, Marín came up with this label that sounded like decolonization. He thought that, like, since it had all this language of decolonization, he thought that he could set legal precedents to kind of, if you build it, they will come. Like, if mm -hmm. you build it, they will decolonize mm -hmm. kind of idea. And then, meanwhile, the United States, they're like, well, we're going to pretend that we're decolonizing, but we're not really going to decolonize. So it's like both parts were kind of calling each other on their bluff. It kind of reminds me of, of this, like, Seinfeld episode that I love where, like, George Costanza, 
Costanza meets up with the parents of his deceased fiance, and he tells them he has a house in the Hamptons, and they know it's not true. It's a two-hour drive. <laughs> Once you get in that car, we are going all the way to the Hamptons. <laughs> And they all get into a car and start driving to the Hamptons. And <laughs> and they all they also all know that the others know of, that it's all a farce. Almost there. Yeah, this is the end of Long Island. Where's your house? We uh, go on foot from here. <laughs> all right. So I basically, like, we've been in a car with the United States headed to the Hamptons when we all know there's no house in the Hamptons, you know? <laughs> From WNYC and Futuro Studios, I'm Alana Casanova-Burgess, and this is La Brega. In this episode, the charade is over. What's the afterlife of Puerto Rico's political experiment? There's some indication that Luis Muñoz Marín and the U.S. Congress both knew there was no house in the Hamptons. In 1950, while testifying in a House committee hearing, he said, quote, if the people of Puerto Rico should go crazy, Congress can always get around and legislate again. That's what he said in Washington, D.C. But in Puerto Rico, he claimed this new status would be a definitive end to, quote, every trace of colonialism. Part of the promise of the ELA was that it was supposedly the best of both worlds. Self-governance with the protection of the U.S. military and the mobility of a U.S. passport. It was also imagined as a key to prosperity, having a link to the wealthy U.S. while also being able to manage our own affairs. But that was 70 years ago. And recently, this idea has been dealt some severe blows. Fifteen years ago, a recession became a debt crisis, which is now an austerity crisis. Then, in 2016, during two Supreme Court hearings, the U.S. government itself pushed the argument that Puerto Rico wasn't really sovereign after all. And so now suddenly the U.S. flips the coin and they're saying, no, you are a colony. What are you talking about? You were never decolonized. You never had sovereignty in this moment where suddenly we're like, wait, what? what is happening? Yeah, we've been saying that we were a colony, but what does it mean when you say it? The next nail in the coffin came in 2016. It was a law named, unironically, Ley Promesa, or Promise. That's the federal law that installed a fiscal control board to manage the island's finances and implement austerity policies in order to service the debt. These series of events created an awakening. In response to the Promesa law, protesters declared that the time of the promises was over. Se acabaron las promesas. The ELA had been a lie. Something between Puerto Rico and the U.S. had been broken. After all these revelations, people started talking about the, the death of the ELA, the death right. of the Commonwealth. And I became really fascinated by that idea. Like, what, what does it mean for a political project to die? You've described to me before these funerals, right, with like coffins, almost like performance art, I guess. 
Yeah, people mm-hmm. would be carrying a, an empty coffin. Inside of it was supposed to be the Ela that they were going to bury. And then sometimes they were funny, like some there would be women in black with veils crying, like they were mourning, you know, this body. But there was another one that was held in front of the Capitolio where there were all these performance artists and they decided to do a velorio for that which never existed. So mm. like a, a kind of wake, a funeral and a wake for something that never was. Like what died wasn't a thing. It was a set of hopes. It was a set of promises. This feeling of death was suddenly everywhere. In what some called a sign of mourning, black and white Puerto Rican flags started popping up instead of the red, white and blue one. There were murals denouncing colonialism, too. And then came the deaths from Maria. Not metaphorical, not performative, but thousands of lives lost in the aftermath. And here, here is where maybe Puerto Rico could have used the benefits of the island's murky relationship with the U.S. to rebuild from the hurricane. Instead, President Trump threw his infamous paper towels and the White House slow-walked funds— leaving many residents without electricity for nearly a year. Some people are still living under tarps three years later. So now that word colony is on everybody's lips. The veil has been lifted. What happens when the promises are broken? This isn't some theoretical political crisis. It's really an existential one. With an economic collapse and public sector pensions slashed, we've seen a mass exodus from the island. Families looking for jobs elsewhere, better education for their kids. People are fed up, tired of putting up with it, tired of having to bregar, of having to endure, and you can feel it in the air. So who, in this dire time, still believes in Puerto Rico's current status? Who feels decolonized in Puerto Rico? Like, who's like, we're good? I want to start at the beginning. I want to think about what was the era promised to be and who believed in that promise. Who's, who said we had a house in the Hamptons? Yarimar decided to start right at home with her grandmother. That voice you hear is my 93-year-old grandmother. Maria Monserrate Fuentes Herrera, better known as Monsi. She loves to sing. In fact, it's hard to get her to stop singing. Like many Puerto Ricans, I grew up very close to my grandmother. She was always around telling me to fix my hair, asking me if I was really going to go out dressed like that, and basically helping raise me along with my mother. Maybe because she was always around, it wasn't until the recent pandemic that I was able to really spend long hours talking to her about her life, her political views, and the many changes she's witnessed in Puerto Rico. During the pandemic, we spent lots of time joking around and filming funny videos for Instagram, where her handle is Bad Monsi. This is us with my mom singing Bad Bunny. No joke, my grandma really does love Bad Bunny. She thinks he has a potty mouth, but a good heart. I even encanta Bad Bunny. A mí me encanta él. Habla malo, pero actúa bien. 
The pandemic has also given me a chance to discover her surprising brushes with history. Yo fui a un cumpleaños, yo marín, yo te lo dije. It turns out she had gone to a birthday party for none other than Gobernador Luis Muñoz Marín. She was invited by a suitor who coyly asked if she liked to join him at a birthday function. When he explained who the party was for, she lost it. Yo que que? <laughs> I asked her what she wore to this special occasion, and unsurprisingly, she dressed in red, the color of Muñoz's party. She wore a bright red pantsuit and a pava, the straw hat traditionally worn by Puerto Rican peasants. This was her homage to the color and symbol of Muñoz's party, the Populares. She's bummed that there weren't cell phones back then so she could have a picture, not just of her slamming outfit, but of this historic encounter. You see, part of why this event was so meaningful for her is because Muñoz's party, the Populares, was a big part of her childhood. She loves to boast that her father, my great-grandfather, was one of the original Populares, one of the first to cast a vote for this new party that was full of promise. Papá fue de los primeros populares, de los primeros que votaron. She has vivid memories of accompanying him to political meetings as a teenager and of seeing her town of Lares covered in party flags. What she remembers most fondly about those times is the conviction and commitment of the political leaders. She fondly remembers Ernesto Ramos Antonini, the well-known black socialist lawyer who was one of the founders of the party. But her favorite, of course, was Luis Muñoz Marín. Just looking at him, she says, inspired confidence. She loves to talk about how he would go to the chozas of the jíbaros, homes with dirt floors and few belongings, and have coffee with the residents in the little cups they fashioned out of hollowed-out coconuts. He swore the coconut cups made the coffee taste even better. Every time she tells the story, Something about that small gesture of grace really gets to her. She's convinced that he really did love Puerto Rico and just wanted the best for it. Él sentía amaba Puerto Rico. Él lo amaba. Él lo amaba. This kind of uncritical nostalgia is a common staple among Puerto Rican abuelitas. But actually, Luis Muñoz Marín did a lot to erase rural life through his emphasis on industrial development. But for my grandmother, it was all about eradicating the poverty that she grew up with. Bread, land, and liberty. That was the promise. And my grandmother believed in it because she saw it with her own eyes. Lands were being massively redistributed. Even her uncle got a parcel. During this time, industry was also arriving. Homes and schools were being built. For my grandmother, everything was getting better and better. The Ella really did seem like the best we could hope for, the best of all possible worlds. <laughs> Lo mejor de los dos mundos. <laughs> the people of Puerto Rico felt, hey, Ella, Lo mejor de los dos mundos. This is 
Deepak Rambadievis. He's a development planner at the Center for a New Economy and a good friend. Deepak argues that the ELA was never really about decolonizing Puerto Rico. It was about using Puerto Rico as an economic experiment, as a counterpoint to communism during the Cold War. So much so that people from different countries across the world used to come to Puerto Rico to learn about our model and try to implement it in their countries. Building into the clean blue skies, the island is on the move. Apartment complexes, bilingual schools, modern hospitals, luxury hotels. Progress can be seen everywhere. This is Puerto Rico, Progress Island, USA. To the outside, the ELA was sold as an economic success story, a global ad for using tax incentives to lure foreign investment. With the help of a generous tax incentive program, hundreds of businesses, both large and small, have grown and prospered here. But all that economic growth was built on unsustainable compromises. From the beginning, there was an over-reliance on tax incentives, which Washington could enact and take away as it pleased. Already by the 1970s, CBS News called into question whether the Commonwealth system was really bringing prosperity to the island. 60% of Puerto Rican families are living on incomes below the federal government's poverty level. 60% of Puerto Rico's inhabitants need food stamp help. Whatever the past virtues of the island's relations with the United States, today's troubles raise some basic questions about this system in the future. And some argue flatly it no longer works. If it was apparent in the 1970s that there were flaws with this project, it's even more obvious now. Because once the tax incentives were taken away, companies started fleeing Puerto Rico, and the government took on massive debt to stay afloat. By 2016, it became clear that Puerto Rico was descending into what economists literally call a death spiral. Everyone began putting pressure on Washington to pass some kind of debt relief. Among those making the rounds on Capitol Hill was Deepak. He thought, Hey, there's another way of addressing the Puerto Rican dilemma with certainly the economic situation and ultimately also the debt issue. He was initially confident about the impact he could have. He assumed he would be taken seriously. After all, he's a smart guy who works at a fancy think tank where they had developed a solid, cost-effective plan. But Washington politicians had no time for him. This makes him so upset he has to switch to Spanish. Básicamente lo que estaba era a la luz de los ojos de ellos, mendigando por un handout o una plegaria para que por favor no nos no nos hicieran daño. Deepak says they made him feel like he was begging for a handout, or worse, praying for mercy. He returned from D.C. convinced that Puerto Rico was quite simply a colony, and he decided that the island just doesn't matter to the United States. Nosotros no le importamos a gran parte de los Estados Unidos. During our conversation, I noted something he was wearing, a baseball cap with the new black and white Puerto Rican flag. For me, the black and white flag represents a sense of mourning. And also, we need a symbol of resistance. 
Puerto Rico is going through some of its most ugly colonial periods. I didn't live through some of the historic ones which I've read about, which were out and out violent regimes, but this feels violent to me. And this is my way of saying, I fly this flag too, because I certainly feel it represents the current historical moment and how my country's doing. As far as Deepak's concerned, the ELA is done. It's over. Este entendido político ya se acabó. Esto se acabó. But even after everything, believe it or not, there are some who still think the ELA is the best shot we have and who continue to cling to the idea that it is the best of both worlds. After the break, we'll meet some of those people. This is La Brega. For so many Black people, The Wiz feels like home. Like home. The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing. And as it gears up for a national tour, we'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to The Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. This is La Brega. Puerto Rico has been undergoing an existential crisis. There's a consensus building. A lot of people see that the relationship with the U.S. is broken. The Commonwealth status, known as the ELA, is not working. But what makes some people want to keep holding on? Yarimar Bonilla has been meeting them, trying to find out why. One of the strange things about the current moment in Puerto Rico is that while huge numbers of locals are migrating out, many Americans from the 50 states are increasingly moving to the island. There are some, like hedge fund manager Peter Schiff, who routinely go on TV to talk about the virtues of moving your business to Puerto Rico. The government takes most of what I earn, but uh, if I earn money in Puerto Rico, thanks to the fact that they finally uh, reduced taxes there, I get to keep a lot more of what I earn. Peter Schiff has been quite vocal about how he considers that the ELA status is great because there are special tax exemptions for entrepreneurs like him. His investment in the status quo is clear, so I decided to talk to someone who moved here for, let's say, different reasons. <laughs> See, that's going to be wow. enough. <laughs> that's not Thanksgiving, so don't worry. Yeah, don't worry. You're okay, Turkey. That's radio gold. <laughs> Cassie Kaufman runs the YouTube channel Life Transplanet, which is basically videos of her and her family living their best lives in Puerto Rico. It's a royal palm turkey. I feel like he's wearing a tuxedo. Right? <laughs> Black and white. Cassie lives on the west side of the island, in Rincón, which she calls Grincón. The nickname comes from the many United Statesians who have migrated to the surf town over the last few decades. Cassie and her husband are originally from Colorado and moved here partly to escape the cold weather. I was attracted to Cassie's videos because of the way she gushed about living here. So some people may question why we choose to live in Puerto Rico, especially with the earthquakes and the, there's the economic uh, difficulties here on the island. But here's a few reasons why we love living in Puerto Rico and we wouldn't choose anywhere else in the world to live. 
While others complain about everything that's wrong, from the power grid to the local bureaucracy, Cassie uses her channel to rave about the wonders of the tropical lifestyle. She swears she is happier and healthier here. She even lost 30 pounds. She loves that she can grow her own food and be surrounded by palm trees, chickens, and especially those turkeys we heard. But Cassie's not just here because of the landscape. She also loves the people. And she's aware of the resentment generated by fellow United Statesians who come to the island to simply bask in tax incentives. I see. You're just coming here to benefit from Puerto Rico, but not really contribute. And so that's why I, I try to be clear, like, we're here to start our family, to live in the community, to be part of this. For Cassie, Puerto Rico is a place that brings out her adventurous side. In some ways, like, I think that's what's so cool to me about Puerto Rico is that it's this, like, transition land. That phrase transition land stood out to me. A transition to or from where? Is transition land just a different way of describing purgatory? What feels like exclusion and second-class status for Puerto Ricans, to Cassie, means greater freedom. Do you feel like you live in a foreign country? In some ways, if Puerto Rico were just another state, that would, for me, would have very little appeal. We could go to Florida and, you know, go to the beach and have a tropical experience. But to me, what, what attracted me was that it was different. It was like, it was just enough U.S. that it would be more comfortable to move here. For Cassie, that means using the same currency and banks and not having to worry about visa issues while enjoying the perks of living somewhere where she could speak Spanish and bask in a different culture. To her, it really is the best of both worlds. Do you feel like you live in a colony? I wouldn't know what it feels like to live in a colony. It's probably in the sense of a, the military kind of control or that it's a military outpost, basically, still. That kind of has that old colony feel in the sense that we don't have the right to vote. For you personally, you were willing to, to give up that right? I guess that would be kind of a part of the definition of living under a colony, right? When I asked for her thoughts on status, she was more ambiguous. How do you feel about statehood? I don't have a, a horse in the game. I don't feel like that's my call. If it were a state, I would have still probably loved Puerto Rico. In some ways, that's the only thing she could say. I would have been shocked if she said she wanted it to be a state or an independent country, rather than this transition land. Because the fact is, she loves it the way it is. It works for her. I wouldn't want Puerto Rico to lose her identity as a, as a place. And I think that's probably the fear of becoming a state. I'm also of the opinion, as you know, to, to keep the, the culture, to keep the sabor de, de la isla. This echoes fears long expressed in many corners about losing our Puerto Ricanness. Over and over again, people express worries about losing things like our Olympics team, our beauty pageant contestants, and even our language, and say that this holds them back from calling for statehood. But on the other hand, I don't think that there could ever be pull ourselves away from the U.S. completely either. And I think that's where we kind of get in that place of, let's just stay where we're at, you know? Cassie's not the only one. There are plenty of locals who also say, let's just stay where we're at. And the populares, the political party that brought us the Commonwealth to begin with, are still an important political force. Mm -hmm. 
¿Cuál es tu jingle favorito? Ah, es bien fácil. Se llama, creo, y es de Aníbal Acevedo Vila. This is Swanee. She's a 20-something college student at the Universidad Interamericana, known locally as La Inter. And her favorite political jingle is called Creo, which means I believe. ¿Cómo va ese? Yo no lo conozco. <laughs> te, te voy a decir. Empieza diciendo, creo en nuestra gente, su coraje y su valor. Creo en el futuro y en el triunfo de su voz. Swanee is all in when it comes to the populares. Soy yo una popular de corazón. De corazón. De corazón y de mente. O sea, fuego, fuego popular. Fuego. In many ways, Swanee reminds me of my grandmother. That young, politically engaged energy, attending political rallies with her family, with memories of hanging out the car window in the caravans, singing jingles. Yo soy la persona que a sus cinco o seis años yo estaba por la ventana del carro de mami en una caravana. And today, Swanee is the VP of the Young Populares, which means her mission is to attract more young people to the party. A hard task in a moment when many are frustrated with la política vieja. Hay que decirle lo que hemos hecho y que somos. Her way of recruiting is to focus on past achievements particularly the economic development that the ELA represented in its heyday, in the hopes of convincing young voters that the populares are still our best bet. El partido que pudo hacer mucho, pero que todavía le queda mucho por dar. When I asked Wani if she felt like she lived in a colony. ¿Y tú sientes que Puerto Rico es una colonia? Her answer, like Cassie's, was ambiguous. Hay veces que sí. Hay veces que sí se siente y hay otras veces que no se siente tanto. Sometimes, she says. Other times, not so much. And so I asked her if she thinks, like my friend Deepak, that the ELA is dead. And she said, no, she thinks the ELA is still alive. Que ha sido muy maltratado, pero que al final del día nos sigue proveyendo mecanismos para, para poder desarrollarnos. She recognizes that it's taken a beating but says it still holds promise. I have to admit, it surprised me to hear a young person defend the status quo so passionately. But here's the thing, possibly the most important thing to know about Swani. She is from Barceloneta. Soy natural de Barceloneta, Puerto Rico. Barceloneta is a small town on the northern coast of Puerto Rico, which was once home to one of the largest pharmaceutical complexes in the world. Cuando Barceloneta era uno de los campos más grandes de, de la industria farmacéutica del mundo. It was literally known as the industrial city, la ciudad industrial. Over 14 pharmaceutical plants were established here, partly because of the purity and abundancy of its water reserves. But... Many of these pharmaceutical plants left Barceloneta after the federal government put an end to the tax incentives that had brought them there. Today, the groundwater is contaminated and the factories are empty. Tú pasas por la número 2 de Barceloneta y ves los edificios de la fábrica abandonados, de todas las fábricas que se fueron. When the companies left Barceloneta, many people lost their jobs. 
Jobs that Zwani thinks were only possible because of the ELA status. Pues yo vi todo ese proceso de cómo cerraban las fábricas en mi pueblo y cómo todas mm. las personas, todos los papás de mis amigos se quedaban sin trabajo. Fue un proceso bien fuerte. For Swanee, this was painful to watch. Barceloneta took a hard hit after the factories left. And many of those who lost their jobs eventually left for the States. Perhaps this is why Swanee refuses to give up on the ELA. Accepting its death would be like accepting the death of the hometown she knew and loved. When I talked to Swanee, she cited all the classic catchphrases of the populares, like Puerto Rico as the bridge between the U.S. and Latin America, and the importance of the U.S. government providing protection in the case of natural disasters. She seemed earnest and sincere in these beliefs. But when she says that famous slogan... She says it with a laugh because she knows it's a cliche and perhaps one that's harder and harder to believe in. And yet the alternatives, independence or statehood, are unconvincing to her. For now, she prefers sticking with the devil she knows because she's unconvinced that new is necessarily better. Quizás lo nuevo al final del día... Aunque suena tentador, pero realmente no, no es lo mejor para el país y no es lo que buscamos. If Suanis Barceloneta is the symbol of abandoned industry, another town, Rio Piedras, is the symbol of abandoned commerce. If you read a news story about Puerto Rico's debt crisis, you will most likely see it accompanied by a picture of Rio Piedras' desolate Paseo de Diego. This pedestrian mall used to be a bustling commercial district. Visitors from surrounding parts of the Caribbean would come and load up on goods to sell back home. My mom was a master seamstress, and this was a primary destination for us when I was young. Every year, we would do our back-to-school shopping, happily combing through the big bolts of fabric at stores like La Riviera, where we would purchase fabric for a whole semester's worth of new handmade dresses. Now... That's a long-lost memory. Most of those stores are shuttered, and the few that remain are struggling to survive. Alana and I were recently in Rio Piedras at a time when it felt much more active. There was a caravana, a political rally where people get in their cars and drive around following a candidate during election season. We were asking folks there if the ELA had died. And one guy was quick to answer. It never died, he said, because it was never born. He was there supporting a new movement in Puerto Rico that wants to stop talking about status and focus on other fundamental issues like government corruption, gender violence, and the need to audit the debt. The caravana was for the campaign of a young politician named Manuel Natal. He narrowly lost the race to be San Juan's mayor, and I mean narrowly. It wasn't just a matter of a close margin. There's evidence that election officials botched the count. But even this near victory was astonishing, given that Natal is from a brand new political party. So how would you define the ELAS? It was el maquillaje de la colonia. It was a way of putting a little bit of 
makeup on our colonial relationship with the United States. A little lipstick on the pig. Yeah, yeah. The pig is the colony, not the people of Puerto Rico. <laughs> Natal actually used to really believe in the ELA. Like Swanee, he comes from a family of populares and was once a rising star in the party. But a few years ago, he made a radical decision and became an independent, citing corruption among his colleagues. Then, along with other progressive leaders, he helped found a new political party called Movimiento Victoria Ciudadana. Its members have different visions. Many are pro-independence, but some are pro-statehood. And others, like Natal, are soberanistas, meaning they want more local sovereignty while still retaining their ties to the U.S. But they all agree on one thing. Decolonization is necessary, and we need a new process for deciding which status we want. For decades, the political parties in Puerto Rico have been organized around status options. And every couple of years, we undergo these performative votes that are described as plebiscites or referendums. A majority of Puerto Rico's two and one half million people still live in the country, in the mountains, and in small rural towns like this. Now, for the first time in history, they have the opportunity to vote on their own future. Back in the late 60s, when NBC was reporting on the first plebiscite vote, they called out right away the irony of the spectacle. Most Puerto Ricans, even those who favor a commonwealth, agree on one thing. This plebiscite is, at best, only a temporary solution. The United States is not legally bound by its results, and neither is Puerto Rico. At best, these are little more than opinion polls. In the most recent one last November, the statehood option won by a slim margin, receiving 52% of the votes cast. But these plebiscites are non-binding. They're not tied to any legislation and have no support in Washington. They're basically another bluff. It's like, once again, we're getting in a car heading for the Hamptons, even though we all know there's no house at the end of the road. Supposedly, Einstein defined locura, craziness, as, as trying to do the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And what we have tried in Puerto Rico, we have tried the plebiscites in which the political parties are the ones that lead the process. And at the end of the day, nothing has happened. So what are our other alternatives? Natal's party proposes one such alternative, what they call a constitutional assembly in which representatives of each political option could negotiate directly with Washington the terms of each status choice. And what would this do? Ideally, it would bring concrete answers to enduring questions, like would we have dual citizenship if we were independent? Would towns like Barceloneta get tax incentives for manufacturing under statehood? Would we have access to federal programs like Pell Grants as an associated republic? And maybe the most delicate question, but also the most important one. Would any of these options be tied to reparations for over 120 years of colonial rule? What Natal and others suggest is that debates over status have kept us from dealing with other fundamental questions. In the country that we want to live, whether it's a state, whether it's a free country, whether it's with uh, association with the United States, What's that society, right? What, what does it look like? Uh, it's a poverty and inequality that currently represents most of our island. Is it a society in which there's prosperity and social equality? And that's 
I think the discussion that more more people are interested in having. This idea is appealing to the many young people that have grown frustrated with the long-standing impasse in Puerto Rican politics. These are the ones that marched in the streets to oust the governor in the summer of 2019. And in this past election, they started a viral voter registration campaign on social media. Among them was my grandmother's favorite trap artist, Bad Bunny, who officially endorsed Natal. I started the pandemic posting videos of her on social media, joking that she was la influencer. But by the time the political campaigns were in full swing, she had become a bona fide social media sensation. I posted a video of her in a rocking chair where I asked her how she was going to vote this time around. She surprised us all by saying that she supported the pro-independence candidate Juan Dalmau. The conventional wisdom was that only young voters were supporting the alternative candidates like Natal and Dalmau, and that older voters were afraid of change. To which she said, Her video went viral. Dalmau even used it for one of his TV spots. And then the morning shows came calling. Como toda una influencer, como Bad Bunny ha conquistado las redes sociales por sus videos. She then wrote and sang a political song that also took off. Ni azul es ni colorado. Ajá. Ni azul es ni colorado. Yo quiero la patria nueva que nos propone Dalmau. Ahí está. <laughs> and the weekend before the election, Dalmau himself actually came to visit her and brought her flowers which put her over the moon. After a lifetime of voting for the populares and of supporting the ELA, her public support of an independentista was surprising. But it doesn't mean that she wants independence itself. She told me she voted for Dalmau simply because she thought he would make a good governor. This might not sound revolutionary, but in Puerto Rico, it is. As far as the status, she felt like that could be dealt with later. So maybe her transformation isn't that radical. Like a good popular, she thinks we should just kick the status can down the road. Bregar with that later. But you know who is really kicking that status can down the road really hard all the time? The U.S. Congress. They refuse to commit to anything or to even speak clearly about why it insists on keeping Puerto Rico as an ambiguous transition land. So where does that leave us? Honestly, I don't know. But I'm skeptical of all the options currently on the table. For example, when I consider independence... I get excited about the possibility of being our own country. But then I look around at our neighbors in the Caribbean and see that many have the same challenges as Puerto Rico. Indebted economies, austerity regimes, huge diasporas, the challenges of disaster recovery, and battles over corruption. Independence is clearly not a silver bullet. It doesn't guarantee sovereignty. Instead of battling the Fiscal Control Board, we might end up battling the World Bank or the IMF. But when I consider statehood, I think of Hawaii, 
and how the native population there was shut out of much of the prosperity and development that statehood supposedly ushered in. Or I look at the movement for black lives in the U.S. and the discrimination suffered by people of color in the States. And it makes me wonder if anything other than second-class citizenship will ever be available to us. So I end up back where we've been for all these years, at an impasse. Yet something feels different about the current moment. The signs of change might be subtle, but they're there. In the ubiquity of the black and white protest flags, in the dark lyrics of a Bad Bunny song, and in the transformations at the ballot box as thousands move towards alternative candidates. In the end, I think the closest thing I've found to an answer of what I want for us is something my mom said one night as she jumped into the conversations with my grandmother. Tiene que suceder algo diferente que no es lo que ya está. Porque lo que ya está funcionó en un tiempo. Pero ya no funciona. Ya no funciona. She said something has to change because what we have might have worked at one point, but it just doesn't work anymore. Yo ni sé, pero yo quiero para Puerto Rico algo que quizás todavía no lo hemos pensado, que estamos en el, en el proceso de, de pensarlo. She wants something that doesn't yet exist, something we're still in the process of inventing, something we haven't thought of yet. But this is the problem. Among the many crises in Puerto Rico, there's also a crisis of the imagination. We know that what we have is not working, but we've been gaslit into fearing change. And so, I can only hope that this moment of crisis can also be one of transformation. We saw it during those massive protests in 2019, when thousands came together shouting, Somos más y no tenemos miedo. We're more and we're not afraid. It's unclear what it means to assert we're more, but I'd like to think it means that we're more than just the sum of our parts and that we can be more, more than a transition land or a disappointing compromise. So perhaps if the death of the Ella and the end of the promises means anything, it's the realization that the world we deserve is not something that can be promised, conceded, or guaranteed. But it's also not something that we can keep waiting for. Yerimar Bonilla is an anthropologist and professor at Hunter College and at the City University of New York. She's also co-editor of Aftershocks of Disaster, Puerto Rico Before and After the Storm, and a founder of the website Puerto Rico Syllabus. La Brega is a co-production of WNYC Studios and Futuro Studios. This episode was produced by Mark Pagan, Ezequiel Rodriguez-Andino, and by me. It was edited by me, Mark Pagan, and Marlon Bishop. Engineering by Stephanie Lebeau, Leah Shaw Dameron, Alicia Baitup, Gabriela Baez, and Rosana Caban. Fact-checking by Maria Soledad and Victor Ramos. Original music for La Brega was composed by Balloon, and our theme song is by Ife. 
We had additional music from Frankie Reyes, and art for this piece was done by Rosaura Rodriguez. Leadership support for La Brega is provided by the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation and the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, with additional support provided by Amy Liss. Thanks also to Rafael Cox Alomar, Benjamin Torres Cotay, Adrián Florido, and Sofía Galliza Muriente. This is our last episode for now. This has been La Brega. Thank you for listening and hasta la próxima.